Welcome to Libromania, a podcast for the book obsessed from the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern. Each week, I'm presenting conversations with authors, designers, publishers, artists, biographers, critics, and scholars about the various things that make books worth celebrating. We're talking book design, bookstores, book printing, and book collecting. We're talking about the lives and problems of famous authors and the science behind our love of books. We'll be chatting with working writers about their process and with scholars about the art of writing biography. This is chapter six, in which we remember the work and legacy of poet Mary Oliver. She was a popular poet in a time when being a popular poet was looked down upon by the establishment. And I think that was a great thing. So she was sort of subversive um, in that way. And she was successful in that way. Here was someone who I felt like was, was speaking to me and telling me that, you know, I was loved and known and seen and heard in a way that wasn't trite, in a way that wasn't feel goody, but just in a way that felt true. You're probably aware by now that Mary Oliver, often called America's most beloved poet, died of cancer last week at the age of 83. She was the recipient of the 1984 Pulitzer Prize for Poetry for her collection American Primitive and the winner of the 1992 National Book Award for her book New and Selected Poems. As the New York Times claimed in 2007, she was, quote, far and away this country's best-selling poet, end quote. She was the kind of poet whose lines show up on Pinterest and major poetry anthologies at the same time, the kind of poet who resonates with the world of academia and pop culture at once. She was, in some ways, a bridge builder, someone who brought poetry to people who didn't otherwise care about it. As my first guest today, Alison Bacchus-Troy, wrote recently for Image Journal's Good Letters blog, Oliver, quote, offered her and many other readers words that named the elements of beauty and wreckage in our lives without pretense without dishonesty, end quote. So today, in remembrance of her life, let's explore her influence a little bit. Up first, I chat with Allison about how Mary Oliver changed her life, and then after that, I'll be chatting with poet and editor A.M. Juster about Oliver's legacy and the state of contemporary poetry after her passing. First, though, Allison Bacchus-Troy. Allison is a writer and educator living in Boston. Her work has been published in Image, the St. Catharines Review, Books and Culture, Comments, and other places. And of course, she is a regular contributor at Image's Good Letters blog. She received her MFA in Creative Nonfiction from Seattle Pacific University. And here's our conversation about the way Mary Oliver changed her life. Enjoy. I just want to start with this, I guess. I've got lots of questions about it and about how her work you know, what her work meant to you. But could you just kind of tell me a little bit about how you first discovered Mary Oliver's poetry? And were you, and I guess, were you also a poetry lover already? Yes, yes. So, um, you know, I have my MFA from Seattle Pacific University and, mm-hmm. um, and that, fo- like, that focused in not, like creative nonfiction, but I have been mm-hmm. reading and studying poetry since I was, you know, in high school, you know. And um, when I was in college, like many people who came and come to love Oliver's work, I was really at a point in my life where I needed to hear a voice that knew me. Mm. And I, um, I was in the honors program at, at my undergraduate school and, um, Every day, my um, professor who was in charge of the program would send out like a daily email and it would have, you know, something that connected to something we had been talking about at an event or in class or just something that he noticed. And the Wild Geese poem, which is so famous and almost mm-hmm. ubiquitous now, um, yeah. was in 
was in that email. And I was so struck by it. I mean, I, it was just something that when I read it as like, you know, a 20 year old, 21 year old who um, was really emerging from my, my childhood and the life that I had known, um, which was full of abuses and neglect. Um, and mm. here I was in college reading all these, you know, beautiful writers and really kind of coming into my own life. Here was someone who I felt like was, was speaking to me and telling me that, you know, I was loved and known and seen and heard in a way that wasn't trite, in a way that wasn't, um, you know, feel goody, but just in a way that felt true to me. And that mm. poem has just remained with me, you know, for the past 15 years. You know, so it was really, I mean, I don't have like a date, you know, like some people are like, oh, on this date, I went and I heard Mary Oliver and it changed my life. But, um, you know, just reading that poem, I I very specifically remember this, this feeling of just clarity, like just very loving clarity when, when I read it. Hmm. So maybe not a date, but you definitely have like a moment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you said that Mary Oliver, she seemed to know you i suppose yeah. i think is, is what you said and and that you felt that sort of right away can you explain what that means a little bit i mean i don't mean that you have to get too personal into your right. into your childhood or anything like that but in what ways did that particular poem you know what what about the poem itself i mean was it something formal was it the themes that she was she was going after was it just her her way of language yeah. or some kind of image or something like that? that that's a very good question i think um hmm you know, there was something about her voice that was just immediately mm. trustworthy. Um, and I think it was really, you know, how measured the tone and the language was in the poem. But really, you know, where the poem opened up to me um, and where it you know, will always open up to me is that line, you know, tell me of despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Mm. And there's just you know, there's just this very open exchange that happens there. And, um, you know, in um, my own tribute to Oliver, I write about how in my family life, you know, we had gone through many difficult things. Um, my my mom has borderline personality disorder. She's an alcoholic. She's dealing with generations of abuse in her own family. And I had never really been able to say that what we had carried as a family and dealing with those things felt like despair. You know, um, it really named our suffering for me in a way that felt very personal. And I mean, I mean, the line itself is just very personal. Tell me <laughs> of yeah. your despair and I will tell you mine. You know, yeah. there, there's this, um, there's this equality that's there. It's like, you're both sitting together and taking each other, um, in like an equal way, if that makes sense. And so yeah. I, I just, I really think that like that word of despair, even though it's, it's a sad word, it was such a truthful word. And it, it so opened up for me a way of looking at what I had experienced, what I had known for really what I was, you know, that we had known despair, that we had known sadness, that we had known grief and neglect and abuse. And, and just that, that single word really like opened that for me and really, um, you know, it was part of a longer ongoing journey in my twenties of like, you know, working through what my childhood had been and, um, you know, discovering my own life and, um, living outside of what those cycles of abuse really looked like. I really, I think that all this gift of that word really opened that for me, mm. if that makes sense. I love that you pointed out this sort of 
conversational. Like she's yeah. inviting you into a conversation. Tell me about your despair. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. And her poems often, I think, have that sort of give and take. She, there's an invitation to participate in something yes. together. She's not just sort of talking at you or, or maybe even right. talking past you or describing something, but she's inviting you to participate in something. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. I think like, you know, something that is just so deeply true about that too. I mean, like it's, it's a very sacramental kind of feeling, you know what I mean? Cause it's like, here you are, you're being invited to like partake of seeing the world in a particular way of seeing it. in It's true beauty and sometimes terror. And she's also like doing that alongside you. You know what I mean? I mean, I, mm-hmm. in, in that poem in particular, she is, you know, she's not telling you to like suck it up. She's not being ironic. She's not like disappearing on you. Like she, she's looking at the world with you mm-hmm. and um, partaking of what she sees with you. And I mean, that to me really has these very large echoes of um, what, what we participate in at, at the chalice and in communion and in church settings, it's just like there, there's something holy that's happening there. And so um, that, that is something I really appreciate about her is that like um, throughout her work and especially in that poem, um, you are you are invited to do stuff with her. And you get this sense that like she wants you there. And I think mm-hmm. like, you know, that's, that's such a tone of her voice that I appreciate because it's a loving tone. It, you know, she's just as astounded and like um, engaged in seeing you, the reader, as she is the geese or the beach or, or whatever it is that like she is encountering. She's encountering you too. And that is, um, that's a really blessed thing. Mm. So you talk about how she gave you kind of a a language to speak about something that you had experienced and kind of been unable to name. I guess I, I think mm-hmm. is the way you put it. Was do you did it go beyond that though? Do you think that she is trying to is her attempt is her goal in her work? Do you think to offer healing as well to offer some kind of solution or or is that sort of is that ability to name things enough. Does that make sense? That does make sense. You know, I think that's something that she really struggled with a lot. Um, and something, you know, I've been reading a lot of, you know, tributes to her and, um, you know, different people writing about her work. And this morning um, I was reading, Billy Collins had something in the Paris Review about doing a book signing with her and how many people <laughs> were standing in line, like to do this book signing and they're just weeping. They're like, you know, unable to speak with her. And it's because that, you know, he heard them saying things like her poetry saved me. And I think that that was something that like, you know, I mean, Collins was talking about how she was just very, he said he, she was very cool about it. Like that she just <laughs> kind of created each person and like, you know, yeah. was kind and like, um, so I don't know exactly like if she meant for her work to like be healing, but you know, she does have this quote about how poems are kind of like lifelines that are thrown to people that, you know, they're pieces of bread given to the hungry. Um, so I think that she did have this sense that when we name things and when poetry does the work that it's supposed to do, it reveals the world to us as it's both supposed to be. And like in its, you know, Oh, how do I say this? Like, like the world is revealed to us, but also healed for us and we're partaking of it. And I think that like she, 
really wanted that in her poems. At the same time, she didn't see herself as like a therapist. You know what I mean? She didn't see right. herself as like just offering trite lines of hope to people. Like, you know, she was just as much engaged in that work of, of discovery herself. And so I don't think that she hmm. um, would have been comfortable saying like, oh, I'm a healing guru of poetry. Yeah. You know, like I think that she really was just like, she was just doing the work and it that happened. If that makes sense. You know, I think that like she was just writing her poems and that's what came out. And she was just as astounded by it as all the people standing in line waiting to get her book or get their book signed. You know, (laughs) I don't like. I mean, that's just that's what I sense. Yeah. Yeah. Over the last few years, I've kind of cringed a little bit at the pinterestization of her work yeah, yeah, because i think that what people do i mean you talk about i, I want to talk about this idea of sentimentality i guess because i think what people do is they they would take individual lines or they would take you know a i don't know a terse set or something mm-hmm. then they would just throw it on a poster with some sentimental yes. image and you'd think well that's the mary oliver that that's right. what mary oliver is but but you see you don't think that her work is sentimental you are you right in in, in your piece for image um, let's see if I can find it here. Uh, probably. I, okay. So you say that she was, you said she wasn't a Pollyanna and right. see if I can, there was a specific sentence. This is great. This is great radio here looking for something in a, <laughs> <laughs> luckily we can take it out. Um, right. but, but you say basically, I can't, I can't find that. I should have highlighted it, but you say specifically, you don't, you don't, you don't see her work as being sentimental, that, that right. her, that her uh, approach to nature and her value of it her valuing of it didn't make her sentimental. So, right. so what, what, why do you think that her work gets sort of sentimentalized and um, I'll just put it there first. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good question. Well, I think, you know, part of like what is so powerful about Oliver is that, you know, she really touches on, you know, these feelings of beauty and amazement. And, you know, we live in a time like you're right. It's really easy to just like take a little quote and put it on like, you know, a picture of a dewy leaf. Um, (laughs) And there you go. Um, But I think that, you know, people are just really afraid of facing the truth about things. You know, they're afraid that if they are, um, if they're not positive, if they're not working on themselves, if they're like, you know, if they admit to any sort of complex um, incongruity in their lives, then like they've failed as people. And you see that like all over the place and you see it in self-help books, you see it um, in many, many Christian circles. You know, I can think of many people who um, in, in my own life who are afraid to say that like something is bad or something is hard. And, um, you know, they become Pollyannas themselves and it, it's not helpful. But, um, you know, so this has happened to Mary Oliver. And it, it's hard because like a lot of her images and a lot of her poems, like, you know, they they do have a tendency to kind of bleed into each other because it's just such similar imagery all over the place. But um, Deborah Dean Murphy had this really, really wonderful essay about Mary Oliver's sentimentality accusations um, in um, the Crescent this past spring. And um, that was really helpful for me as I was thinking through that because I've never like I've never felt that myself that her work was really sentimental and I think it's because I had such a powerful experience with her initially but if you're somebody who just randomly sees her on like 
um, you know, your friend's Pinterest page and you're like, oh, okay, this is not real poetry, quote unquote. Um, <laughs> but she, um, you know, she did not see her work and her life as a means of just like, you know, inspiring people. She was going out into the woods to reckon with herself, you know, mm-hmm. and if you look through, um, you know, different books of her poetry where she's talking about, you know, just her family life or, um, you know, wrangling with, you know, different things in the news. It's very dark. Um, and it's very, um, I mean, it's hopeful, but at the same time, like it doesn't shy away from the unanswered realities of things. There's this poem, I forget exactly the name of it, but it's talking about how um, she keeps having these visions of like her dead father appear at her door. And, um, you know, she finally like opens the door and her father is there and he just looks so completely weak and unable to be the person that she needed him to be. And um, at the same time, in, in that poem, she's able to, to love him and um, invite him into her house. But the poem itself doesn't, you know, it's not like, oh, everything is better. Here we are looking at like the marmots and we're all happy. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, she very clearly says that like, it's, it's such a heavy weight to, to face him. And so I think that because so many of her encounters in her poetry end with like these epiphanies, um, people can mistake an epiphany for like a, a nice tidy answer. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's not, it's not, you know, but because we ourselves are people who are so prone on like being so positive and, you know, quote unquote, counting our blessings and, you know, looking for the silver lining and everything, which is very destructive. I mean, it's, it's one thing to be hopeful. It's another thing to be um, purposefully blind to the realities of our lives. And, um, you know, for me, Oliver's work, um, it, it wasn't sentimental because it was true. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just really, really true. And I think something else that I found, really wonderful about it was that like, you know, in times, you know, in my life where I was processing and grieving what had happened to me as a child, it was really wonderful to be able to read a poem about just looking at a bird in the woods and, you know, this encounter with like the bird in the woods or whatever natural thing she was encountering and that be it, you know, like it, it felt that also felt healing because it was about encounter and realness, but it wasn't so, um, I don't know, it was just a balm, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, like, I think for me, I can see where people are um, eager to kind of put that sentimental label on her. But, you know, um, I think the Deborah Dean Murphy's assessment of of her of her work and of, like, you know, kind of the, the spiritual trajectory of her work really kind of takes that away. And that, like, Murphy's essay is really wonderful. I mean, she, she just does a really excellent job of really kind of going through the whole scope of Oliver's work and these different, you know, critiques of her as not being a real poet. And then it's like, well, why does she have millions of people crying when she dies? You know, she, she touched on something very, very real for so many people. Um, so, so for me, because of that initial encounter and because of, um, you know, the seeing more the breadth of her work, you know, she's not like, she's not just a, a hallmark card. You know, like she was really, she was the real deal. Hmm. There's a poem. Um, we have another podcast called The Daily Poem. And on Friday, I read a couple of late, late era Mary Oliver mm-hmm. poems on that. And there's a poem 
uh, that I shared on that from her collection, Felicity, I think it was 2015 mm. or 16. And it's called Nothing is Too Small Not to be Wondered About. Mm. Which, first of all, as a title, that's that's a great poetic line in itself, yeah. the way it kind of switches into the negative space and all that. But it's about a, a cricket that um, is kind of singing and singing and then winter well fall comes and then winter comes and then it's not singing anymore and um the line says something like he sings so at first it seems like it's going to be this sort of romantic sentimentalized poem and then it says he sings slower and slower than Mm. nothing and then she says this must mean something i don't know what but it doesn't mean he hasn't been an excellent cricket all his life right and i think that that kind of i think that's a classic mary oliver sort of approach where maybe on the, if you're just reading it on the surface, at first it seems like it's going to be sort of sentimental as, you know, worth putting on a Hallmark card right. um, or, you know, being the, being the basis for a uh, sappy, sappy movie or something. Um, but, uh, but then it, it kind of has this reversal to it. And then in the end, the re- she's, she speaks this reality that there is some kind of, um, I don't want to call it darkness, but you know, there is, things change, things evolve, things die. You know, there's, there's a, she speaks to the reality, but then she's able to identify a hopefulness in that reality or she's able to identify some sort of truth in the reality. Right. Right. And the hopefulness is not like, um, it's not trite, you know, it's, it's like, um, it's, it's also very much shaped by like her not trying to fill in her reflection with like an answer you know, I mean, she does say like, oh, he, he must, he was an excellent cricket all his life, but you know, she also says like, I don't know. Right. Yeah. And that's like, man, we, we just need, we need people to be able to enter into that posture. You know what I mean? Like we, we are so in a place in our world and, um, in all of our discussions with each other and online and, and just kind of everywhere where like we can say, I don't know you know, and actually mean it. And there's this humility to her work, um, in terms of like her, her approach to examining things that is such a corrective for us. You know, I mean, the fact that like here she is writing about a cricket and finding, um, connection and something to say that doesn't diminish the cricket, but also doesn't diminish like her, her wondering and encounter with this cricket mm-hmm. and the fact that she's just doing it in the first place. We need that yeah. so much. We, we really need that. And so I hope that like people are able, you know, as these, these accolades of her work keep coming out and like, you know, people keep posting more things. I hope that people are able to enter into that posture with her because it would, it would be healing for, you know, so many different conversations and places, both like, you know, with individual people, but especially I'm thinking about like, you know, every online rage machine needs Mary Oliver, <laughs> you know, they really yeah. do. They really well, do. I think Pope, po- the, the world of poetry in general needs voices like Mary Oliver. I've been yeah. thinking about this a lot because, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, as in any time when things are turbulent, well, actually as in any time at all, but especially during turbulent times, there, there tends to be, you know, a certain, certain poets emerge, right. That yeah. are politically driven, that are driven by right. sort of anger. And, and I'm not saying that that's, that is inherently a negative thing, but what, ha- what tends to happen is people, poetry become, can, can dr- those people's poetry can sometimes drift into this sort of aggressive didacticism. And it can yeah. be so um, about, you know, it can be about providing answers and solutions in a way that, that can be, um, 
kind of unpoetic. Yeah. Um, there's yeah. a really interesting book out last year called Why Poetry by Matthew Zapruder, who I'm hoping to interview soon, actually. And he has this whole section in it about negative space in poetry and how mm. poetry is sort of driven by the unanswerable. It's driven by the the not in the line right. and how, how there's so many poems that begin or end with the line not or mm. begin with sort of admission that they don't, they don't know the answer to it. And I right. think that Mary Oliver seems to be an example of someone who's, who's, as you're saying, willing to say, I don't know. And that's where the wonder starts. Like poetry yes. wonder begins yes. by saying, I don't know, but I'm going to look and see what I can find. Right. Right. And so much of her capacity to wonder is built on, you know, this lifetime that she spent just like, putting, you know, finding herself in situations where like she let herself wonder, you know, there's such mm-hmm. deep, I mean, that was a yeah. virtue. Gave herself permission. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, like, um, not just gave herself permission, but also like really kind of forced herself, you know, I mm-hmm. think like, you know, if you, it, I mean, her work really doesn't go into like any sort of political stance, you know what I mean? And that's something that Murphy talks about too in her, her article in the Crescent is that she was like, you know, um, it seemed that as the older that Oliver got and, you know, the more intense like discussions about climate change and environmental pollution and, you know, all of the, um, everything attached to that, it seemed like her work got slower, you know, and not in terms of like producing, but in terms of like the things that, we, that kind of wonder that she would attached to things, you know, um, she wrote about smaller and smaller things. And like, um, you know, to me, what's really powerful about that is that in the face of, you know, it would be very easy for like people, like, like we said, to just kind of like slap Oliver's work onto like a wide variety of different social issues. But instead of like letting that happen to herself, you know, she just kept refining her attachment to the world and her um, great love for it by looking at things that were, you know, smaller and smaller in scope, you know, and to me, that seems like a really powerful corrective to becoming a talking head, Hmm. you know, Um, instead of like letting her poetry become a vehicle for people's um, maxims and slogans, she just kept doing the work that her poetry invited her to do, which was to pay attention and be astonished and tell about it, hmm. you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, uh, we're almost out of the time that I said I would oh, keep wow. you for. So, <laughs> I have like no uh, idea. Yeah, time flies. So, okay, here's my, here, I guess let's, let's kind of move towards wrapping it up with this. Mm-hmm. For people who are perhaps most familiar with Mary Oliver's work, either through you know, just her most popular poems, the ones that get shared the most or through the, the Pinterestization of her work. Where right. would you recommend that people dive in? Would you just say dive in with American? Um, you know, honestly, um, I mean, like, that's really good. But a book of hers that I really love and I think like really honors her legacy is her um, her poetry handbook. She has this really mm-hmm. wonderful handbook that I've used in teaching that's all about like how to read poems and so much of her and there are pieces of her work in there too but so much of her um her way of being and so much of like the way that she worked as a poet is in that book and it's really really wonderful and powerful because it like along with her teaching you how to like you know how do you look and listen for rhythm how do you look and listen for what an image is doing, you really get a wide sense of like how she looked at the world and how she looked at her own work. And, you know, um, I think of people like, 
you know, my, my dad who, you know, he's in his sixties and he lives on the North side of Chicago and he works in a, you know, a wine, uh, warehouse. And this is the kind of book that he could pick up and read on the train and be like, Oh wow, I can listen to like, you know, the rhythms of the train going by and, um, you know, kind of see different images and the, you know, the people around him and in like what they're wearing and what things remind him. And I think that's really something that Oliver would love have loved to give to the world is like people taking up that work of paying attention, you know? And so like, um, any of her collections are really wonderful, but if I had to recommend something, I would honestly tell people read her poetry handbook because you're going to be doing the work of, of seeing the world in a, in a way that befit her poetics. And that's really like what she, I think wanted people to do. Mm. Yeah, I love that book. It's really fun. It's really fun. So, I mean, my dream is like, I would really love to like lead some sort of like adult ed class, like with that, that book. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to do that, but um, <laughs> it would just be wonderful. It would just be wonderful because it's like, you know, part of what makes Oliver's work special to people is, you know, because it's so accessible and the language is, is really rich, but simple. It invites people to do that in their own lives. And, mm. you know, that's, you know, because Oliver was about looking at the world with people, I can't imagine like a better book to learn how to do that with. Hmm. She also wrote, she had many collections. She, was it, there's a poetry handbook and then a oh, rules for the dance, a handbook oh, for writing okay. and reading magical verse. I don't know if you've ever read that one. Mm-mm, mm-mm. That's a little bit more formal, you know, okay. more into the, to the specifics of the of various forms. Yeah. Um, but she, so yeah, she's, she had an ability to, uh, to explain things very clearly, which of course yes. comes out in her, her poetry itself. So, right. right. Well, cool. thank you so much for spending oh, a few thank minutes. You. This was really wonderful. I really appreciate you um, reaching out to me and um, asking me to talk about this, this wonderful poet. Absolutely. Do you have a uh, last thing, I guess is what is wild geese your wild? Yeah. Wild geese. Is that your favorite of her poems or do you have yeah. something else that's her? Yeah, that's, that's my favorite. Do you have it handy? You want to read it? Oh goodness. Um, no, I don't. Um, <laughs> I can find it though, because we have the internet. So yeah. let me find it. Oh yeah. You know, I used to, um, I talk about this in my tribute to her, but when I was teaching, I would, I had this memorized for my students and would recite it to them. And it was so important to me for them to be able to hear this poem because it was like, you know, for me to have heard it when I was in college, um, I felt like I was kind of, you know, giving back what had been given to me and kind of entering into that call and response with her, you know? So I was really glad to be able to, um, to share that with them. So, yeah, well then, yeah, definitely share, read it, read it here for us. Okay. All right. So this is wild geese. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, 
over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Hmm. <laughs> I got a little teary. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> hey, before you go, let me ask you a couple of questions about that. Sure. If you have, if you have a few minutes. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. So I've always been kind of intrigued by some of the turns that this poem takes. Mm-hmm. So for example, you have this, this first five lines, you don't have to be good down through, um, love what it loves. Right. What do you, and then, and then, and then that's where the turn comes to tell me about your despair. And right. then it goes down. I think that kind of section seems to go down through the wild geese are heading home. And then whoever you are kind of begins a new section. So yes. that, yeah. so this seems like there's three different sort of distinct sections in this poem. So two different turns is the way I read it. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you make of this first section then? You do not have to be good. You don't have to walk through the desert repenting. Right. You don't have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. And then, and then leading into despair. What, what right. do you make of that first section first? You know, um, question. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting. because I think that that could be a portion that could turn a lot of people off. You know, I think especially like, um, in a variety of like Christian circles that are very like, you know, to have someone tell you that you don't have to be good. It's like, well, well I'm not listening to that. Cause that's like what, you know, we're supposed to be good and virtuous and like, right. You know, right. This, this, this. But what to me, that's really about like, um, or, or the way that it spoke to me when I was in college was that it was like, um, and for me personally, you know, I had come from this background where like I was, I was the overachieving eldest daughter, you know, I was trying so hard mm-hmm. to be this center of goodness for my family and it's still kind of watching things fall apart. And so much of my idea of my own worth was about like, well, if I could just be good enough, right. These things will, mm-hmm. will heal themselves. Things will be fine. If it's, if I can just be, you know, the straight A perfect student perfect, knowledgeable young woman, like everything will be fine. And that really, I mean, like just for me personally, that really like kind of unlocked that and was like, no, like it spoke to that, that wounding in my life. And I think it's really just kind of about, you know, you can exist, you know, you can, you can just be who you are just as like a single human person with the dignity that is attached to who you are just by the virtue of you being a human person, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I don't think it's like some sort of directive about how to live your life. I don't think it's making any claims about like, you know, any particular direction to take or whatever. I think it, it's simply about like, you, you can just be, you don't need to be in this place of self throttling. You don't need to be in this place of, you know, not just criticizing yourself, but like, you know, wearing many hair shirts, you know, like I think to me like that, it's speaking to that tendency among people. And, you know, so many people who have loved this poem, like um, I think are people who have come out of situations where they felt like that, you know, I mean, it's a very common human experience to feel like your worth and, and um, the, the reality of you being a beloved person on this earth is tied to what you do and what how you perform in whatever setting that you're in and you know it seems to me that in this stanza it's just kind of shushing that Hmm. it's interesting that you mentioned sort of a perfectionistic tendency or you thought you could solve things by performing a certain way but that's but then maybe would you say then that that was sort of you it allowed you to sort of cover up 
the sense of despair, which in this poem yes. says, okay, that's what it is. Yes, very much, very much. Because it, it, I mean, there's a certain energy to, you know, performing, right? right. That like covers up. And that's, I mean, like it's yeah. the same kind of energy that you see of people who are constantly posting, like, you know, here's my inspirational meme. I'm going to be fine. You know, I got this. And really it's a very frantic way of looking at yourself because the fact that you are still carrying your despair you know, um, it's, it's so exhausting. And, um, here in this, this, these opening lines, I hear Oliver just kind of quieting that, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. And then it seems to be saying, look, the world's going to go on no matter what. <laughs> and it's, it, true. Almost... it's true. But you know what I, uh, what has always been comforting me about that is that like, it, there's definitely, it does not smack of like, Oh, you know, this is just the way things are. And right. like, right. you know, the yeah. world is just going to keep, there, there's something, there's something comforting about knowing that the world exists while you are talking about your despair. You know, there's something yeah. that it's not diminishing. It's not get over it. It's not like, well, this is just, this is just it. This is just the way it goes. And this is what, you know, your grandfather had to deal with. And this is what I had to deal <laughs> yeah. with. You know what I yeah. mean? Like it, it, yeah. um, it describes the world in such a beautiful, simple way. And I, again, like what I said earlier about like, you know, there's some of her poems where it's just so healing to be like, okay, here's Mary Oliver looking at a bird in the woods, you know, the world in its, its simple beauty exists for you, hmm. you know? And um, that's the sense that I, I get here is that like, you know, as you're having this back and forth about despair, however, whatever that looks like, you know, yes, the world is going on, but you are, you are in it. And it's beautiful. And, you know, it's not trying to like put some salve over what you're talking about or what you're dealing with or what you're carrying. But, you know, it's just, it's just the truth. Like, tell me about your despair. Here are the clear pebbles of the rain. Here are the mountains and the river. Here, here we are, you know, and it's just, there's, I think that's something I really love about her work and especially about this poem is that the despair is not diminished and neither is the beauty of the world. Thanks so much to Alison Backus-Stroy for joining me to discuss Mary Oliver's influence on her life. Let's take a quick break, because I want to let you know about our friends over at New College Franklin. It's a four-year classical Christian liberal arts college nestled in beautiful downtown Franklin, Tennessee. Focused on the great ideas, the quadrivium and the trivium, New College Franklin is dedicated to spiritually forming students by discipling them through the seven liberal arts for wisdom, virtue, and service. New College Franklin, a new college reclaiming and recasting the old Augustinian idea of education to take delight in contemplating created truth. Find out more at www.newcollegefranklin.org. Again, that is newcollegefranklin.org. All right, up next is a conversation with Mr. A.M. Juster. He is a poet and translator and the poetry editor of First Things. His work has appeared in top literary journals like Poetry, Hudson Review, Paris Review, and Rattle. In 1995, his sonnet Moscow Zoo was chosen as the winner of the 1995 Howard Nemiroff Sonnet Award, sponsored by The Formalist, and he went on to win again in 2000 and 2008, thus becoming the only three-time winner of that award. In 2002, his book of original poetry and translations, The Secret Language of Women, was selected as the winner of the 2002 Richard Wilbur Award. And in 2014, he was the co-winner of the Willis Barnstone Translation Award. He's published eight books, including The Secret Language of Women, The Satires of Horace, The Billy Collins Experience, and most recently, The Elegies of Maximianus, which came out in 2018. 
As I said in the introduction, I wanted to talk to Mr. Juster about Mary Oliver's considerable reputation and legacy, and to examine the state of contemporary poetry now that she's gone. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with A.M. Juster. Enjoy. When did you, do you remember when you first sort of came across her work? I mean, I know she's been well known for a long time. American Primitive is what in the eighties. So, but do you yeah. have, do you have a sense or a memory of when you first began to have some sort of contact with her? I don't. Um, so um, I was deeply into poetry through college, and then had a discouraging experience and kind of walked away from it for a while. Mm. And so I didn't really come back to it until the early 90s. And it took a while to kind of catch up and reimmerse because mm. uh, I was working pretty hard and I had small children and, and I wasn't quite sure that this writing poetry, again, was, was a smart thing for me to do. So mm. I probably didn't become aware of Mary Oliver until mid to late 90s, probably. Um, and I'd seen pieces, uh, I guess, in poetry and, you know, other other journals and things. Um, but she didn't uh, sort of um, splash onto my consciousness in a dramatic way. And I think that's kind of very Mary Oliver in a way. Sure. I mean, she's she's a quiet, fairly undramatic poet um so it's um uh she she sort of snuck up on me i guess is what mm -hmm. i would say did you i mean so over the years how has she influenced you or what has she meant to you over the years have you are you a big fan or um or more of you just sort of respectfully <laughs> well i'm an outlier so she is in my view a very divisive poet not because she's divisive in and of herself, but mm -hmm. people have responded to her yeah. in extreme ways where yeah. they, they either adore her or they hate her um, <laughs> and really look down on her. Not more than just a really patronize. So I'm, I'm mm -hmm. not really in either camp. So I'm, and I'm generally more positive than negative. Um, and I think that she was very good at some things that poetry ought to do that poetry doesn't do very much anymore. So she, she touched a chord with a lot of people and people felt like this was a poet who was really trying to talk to her, talk to them. And she, uh, I think she was different in that she was likable. I know that's sort of a charged word these days. So mm -hmm. I, I use it cautiously, mm -hmm. but I think the way she came across in her poetry yeah, is probably pretty much the way she was, that she was kind, she was honest, she was earnest and transparent. And in a lot of ways, um, just normal. I think people mm -hmm. forget that she was a contemporary, for instance, of Sylvia Plath. Mm -hmm. She's only She was only three years younger than Sylvia Plath. And so, mm -hmm. you know, as we got through the 60s into the 70s, you know, the Academy, I think, felt differently, but I think a lot of the broader public was getting wary about taking advice from poets because they were all dying of alcohol or drugs or committing suicide. Mm -hmm. And and they were scary, you know, in, a, in that way. Uh, you know, and, they're, and, you know, often they were going right up or over the line of mental illness and all these things. So mm -hmm. it, it, she was a comfortable poet. 
She was a genuine poet. Uh, and I think she also mirrored, her concerns mirrored concerns of a lot of Americans. A lot of Americans, you know, we moved en masse from rural communities into suburban and urban. And I think there is this sort of feeling in a lot of people that they, they're, they're missing that connection with nature. They don't actually go out and do anything about it in many cases, but there's this sentimentality about it, this sort of nostalgia um, for that kind of thing. And, you know, she was addressing that. I think a lot of America, too, is kind of looking for a spiritual but non-religious experience. You know, what 200 years ago we would have called deist, what we probably call Unitarian today. A lot of Americans fall into that category, too. So she, she fit into both needs. So I think she was talking about things that a lot of people resonated with. Um, she was doing it in a clear, uh, appealing way. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, she was a big success. And, and in general, I think poetry should be doing more of that um, rather than less. And I think that we have a lot of impenetrable poetry, unattractive poetry, poetry that doesn't really have uh, you know, a philosophical underpinning to it. It's very self-centered, um, in lots of ways. And so I, you know, and I, you know, I'd like to see newspapers and magazines running poetry all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and very few of them do. So I, you know, so she was a popular poet in a time when being a popular poet was looked down upon by the establishment. And I think that was a great thing. So she was sort of subversive Hmm. um, in that way. And she was successful in that way. And I applaud all that. So, you know, there's a lot there that I like. On the other hand, you know, do I go to Mary Oliver regularly for comfort? And the answer is no. Um, I mean, I'm familiar with the poems. I've read, you know, not all of them. I think she had 20 plus books. So I haven't, uh, I don't pretend to, you know, have read them all, but she has her moments. I think, I think she, I think the problem with the work is it's a bit, a little bit narrow in terms of subject matter and approach. And her approach is basically, and she says this herself, you know, she walks through the, the woods and the countryside and she carries a notepad. She kind of writes what she sees and then she, you know, works at it to say how impressed she is by it. And that's, that's fine. But I think for me, I'm looking generally for more in my poetry. I think she's capable of that. You know, when she really took the risk of self-examination, which I think she was wary of, I think she was a genuinely shy person. So I think the holding up the mirror to her psyche was difficult for her. But there were times when she did it, and that was when she really came up with her very memorable lines. And she's got about three of them that echo across the poetic landscape. Um, I mean, I think the most well-known one is clearly from the summer day, which is tell me what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. Mm -hmm. And that has caused a lot of meditation in a lot of people. Um, and she's got the line in when death comes where she says, I was a bride married in amazement. 
which is a wonderful line. Mm-hmm. And then she's got a much trickier line, a couple lines that were probably the hardest for her to open up and to do, uh, to write in wild geese, mm-hmm. which is you have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. And, you know, that's talking really not about nature, which is probably 85% <laughs> of, you know, her, her work, but she's really talking about herself and her own sexuality. Mm. Um, and given how intensely private she was, I mean, we should be grateful for those lines because I, I, I just, I've always had the sense that those must have been searingly difficult for her to write. You mentioned that she walked through the woods with the notepad mm-hmm. and, you know, that, that of course brings to mind, for example, Wendell Berry and his Sabbath poems. Do you, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how familiar you are with Barry's poetry, but do you see them as being kind of um, alike in their approaches and in their, what they were trying to do? I mean, they both have produced quite a lot of work over a number of decades and uh, I think they're around the same age and so they come from the same generation. Um, but I know a lot of our listeners are are big Barry fans, and I just was wondering if if do you think that they're 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 obviously they're doing the same thing. They're going out and they're they're using nature as the framework by which they see and consider the world. But are, do you think that they're after the same things? Well, I think the answer is no. Um, superficially, and even a little bit beyond superficially, the answer should be yes. Right. But I think there's a big difference there in that. Um, and I don't profess to be an expert on Wendell Berry, but my sense is there you're dealing with a, a poet that has not just a love of nature, but has a real complicated set of ideas about what that means and how society should respond to that. Right. You know, that, that there's an, an agenda there, a set of agendas. And there's, there are thoughts where he's trying to get to an agenda where, you know, maybe he hasn't quite gotten there yet. Mary Oliver really isn't that kind of poet. Um, And, you know, she does just tend to stop on the observation of nature and then generally observing how wonderful it is and how wonderful it makes her feel. And she's rather expressly disavowed having thought through what that really means for society. I mean, it's clear that she was an environmentalist and she thought that we were in big trouble environmentally and that's kind of hard to object to. But I I was a little surprised. I listened to uh, the long uh, interview that Krista Tippett did with her um, uh, uh, with On Being, which is, yeah. I think, one of the very few interviews she's ever done. And I listened to the long version, which is, I think, good because um, some of the, the most instructive uh, moments were were cut out of the, you know, the reduced version. Um, and, she, you know, it's just not her mind. She doesn't sort of think in sort of those terms. I think of them as very different. Um, I think of Mary Oliver maybe a little bit more in the tradition of Thoreau. Um, hmm. And, um, you know, a little part of me wants to say Whitman, but I think Whitman um, was more like Barry in that there really were agendas. I don't know, there was sort of a broader worldview 
that was complicated, that had implication for society that they both had. Thoreau had some of that, but Thoreau, I never was terribly persuaded, had worked through the way he thought the world really ought to be. And I think Whitman and Barry did think through the way they thought the world would want to be. And I'm not, and again, it's, I'm not saying this to be harsh in Mary Oliver. You know, she just didn't set out to, um, you know, establish a political agenda or societal agenda. You know, I think she felt very strongly that if she got people thinking more about nature and its beauty, then a lot of these other things would start to take care of herself and that was themselves. And that was her role. Do you, do you think that that, that narrowing of focus for her and the way that she dwelt, you know, maybe that's the wrong word, but the, you know, I'll use it for now that she dwelt on things that were very personal to her. Do you think that that allowed her to speak to the universal or, um, just, or kept her from, from being as, um, as universally, not love, yeah, but, but speak to universal experience? Well, that's a good question. So I, I think that when she did write, she tried to be universal. Right. You know, she tried to make everything she was saying about nature to be uh, broadly accessible. I think when she, she tiptoed into the more intimate poems, um, you know, she kept a level of generality to it so that nobody would be excluded. Um, and, and I think, you know, I think she did, did a good job at that. On the other hand, I just, in terms of the poets who I think of more recently, who are truly great, she's not quite up in that category for me. You know, when it comes to the descriptions of nature, um, I'll take Elizabeth Bishop, you know, anytime. Um, I just think that there's more precision. Can, Can I jump in and ask you a question about that? Yeah. So yeah. It, it seems now I'm I'm a I'm not I'm not the expert you are in any of these people, but it seems to me that Bishop was certainly uh, relying on and um, you know sort of exalting in sort of classic forms, and she was much more of a formalist than, than yeah. Mary Oliver was. Do you think that that is a big part of of why she appeals to you more, or why you think she's perhaps more universally, or she's able to speak to things more universally, that the forms themselves uh, allow her um, some sort of immediacy? Well, certainly the, the interest in, in forms, um, you know, is a plus for me. But I, I like to think I can take that out and sure, sort of say, sure. okay, I, I'm still, I'm looking at the way she describes the world and the metaphor and what it makes you think. Yeah. I just think that there's a depth and a complexity to an Elizabeth Bishop description of nature that generally you don't see so much in Mary Oliver. Again, you know, it's a tough comparison. I mean, you know, if you're holding someone up against Elizabeth Bishop, well, okay. (laughs) How many poets are going to, you know, survive that? But I also think that, there's a limited vision. And, and, I, and I think one of the things is, while I think she was a very um, kind and um, caring person, oddly a little bit to me, I don't think she was very good at putting herself in the minds of other people. And that when she tried to do that, those are usually her worst poems. 
So she has poems where she tries to take on, uh, you know, Nazi Germany. She has a poem where she's trying to relate to um, uh, a poor boy in a third world nation who's trying to sell, uh, you know, almost nothing for something. And they're pretty bad poems. Um, you know, you just don't get that connection. I guess, and part of it is she had a very journalistic style. You know, she liked to sort of describe the scene in a pretty short, straightforward way and then tell you what you thought about it, uh, what she thought about it. And, you know, I think that works better when you're describing a landscape than when you're describing people. When you're describing people, people are very complex. Um, and you look at, for instance, the Nazi poems and you say, well, how does that stand up? But there's a lot of post-World War II poetry that's very memorable. And you look at uh, Wilbur and Nemiroff and um, uh, uh, Hecht and, and some of their World War II poetry. It's just in a whole different league. For Mary Oliver just can't get her arms around it in the same way. I mean, her wheelhouse is really with the description of landscape. So she is undoubtedly one of the most popular, as you've just, as you've mentioned, the most popular yeah. poets in America in an age when, you know, there aren't a lot of bestseller poets. <laughs> exactly. Right. And, right. you know, she's up, you know, Billy Collins is another example of that. And there are certainly, you know, Barry's certainly fairly successful. He's sold his fair share of books, but yep. do you, who do you think takes up that, that sort of mantle as America's popular poet? I mean, is, is there, you know, there are, there are a lot of great poets out there. There are Pulitzer Prize poets out there, and, but there just aren't as many that are, you know, going to sell as many books as a Billy Collins or Mary Oliver. And then, you know, they did book signings together and they traveled together. Some, from what I understand, but is it is it simply that he's just the next for, the next Mary Oliver that he's going to take off that mantle, or do you see how do you see that kind of shaking out in 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 the, the world of the of American letters over the next you know decade or so? If I mean, you know, I'm, ask, I'm not asking you to be a prophet or anything. I'm just curious what your opinion right. is. Well, I'm again, like on a lot of things, I'm a contrarian. Um, I, I know that it's very popular in the academy and in the literary establishment of these days to say, well, we're in a golden age of poetry. And I don't feel that way. I feel that we've, we're losing a golden age of poetry when you look at you know, all the poets who have passed away, in the, yeah. particularly in the last five years. Um, you know, great ones. And you say, well... Um, under the age of 60, are there, you know, what American poets can we say with confidence? We're going to look back and say, oh, they're great. Yeah. So there's, so there's a, a very similar type of pop poetry that is coming out of the MFA programs. And there are some very hype poets, you know, who are in their late 20s to late 30s, um, we're getting a lot of attention and, and the awards and all that kind of stuff. Sure, sure. I'm not sure that any of them have found a way to reach out to a broader audience. Um, you know, I'm not sure that any poet under the age of 60 has really figured out a way to do that. Cause if you look at sort of who's left, who's selling, you know, it's maybe Claudia Rankine, um, in the UK, Wendy Cope, but you know, there just aren't a lot of poets, you know, and Billy Collins is still selling a lot in the United so States. Yeah. 
still cranking it out. Um, so I, you know, um, I think there's a bit of a vacuum there and I think it's very unclear how it's going to get filled. I, I know that most people you could talk to would have very firm ideas about that. And I'm just, I'm in that, uh, agnostic zone that I just don't, can't tell, you know, what, what's going to happen and who's going to emerge. And I don't really think anybody can. Do you think that has to do to some degree with the, the, uh, lack of interest in, in the sort of classical forms? Or do you think that, that the, the reliance on, you know, sort of, I don't want to say formalist poetry, but you know, I'll, for the sake of conversation, we'll call it that, uh, that that has led to that sort of dearth of voices who are, who are going to last. I think, I think that that's right. I mean, I think that, you know, in my generation, even as postmodernism moved poetry away from form, um, the poets were trained on it. The echoes were there sure. for a lot of the, yeah. you know, the Piper, you know, you can, you can still hear that and you can hear it in Elliot and Stevens and that kind of thing. We've got a generation of poets now um, who really weren't brought up on formal poetry. And it's really, I think the first time, you know, in, uh, yeah. you know, ever in history of English poetry <laughs> yeah. where, where that's happened. And so, um, so you, what you're getting is um, is poetry that I think a lot of the time feels very alien to the broader public, mm. and they're having some trouble relating to it, even though you know they did sort of grow up at this point, um, you know, reading Allen Ginsberg and reading, you know, Bukowski, uh, other poets, yeah, and, and that kind of thing. Um, I, it's not clear to me that what you know the um, the academy is offering is going to be eagerly, you know, gobbled up by the public. I mean, what is being gobbled up and is, is sort of, I think, a rejection of the literary and academic establishments is the Instagram poetry. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, Rupi Kaur and, and, and people like that. And, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm annoyed by these articles that appear, particularly in the U.K., that say, well, poetry is booming because, you know, look at sales, look at this and that. Well, I said, I look at that and say, well, you take Rupi Kaur out of the um, equation. I'm not sure that the sales really are booming. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you're sitting in an academic chair, you know, pushing the kind of poets that are pushed in the academy, I don't know that you should really be hiding behind the Instagram poetry to say, well, we're not doing any damage. Everything's great. People love poetry. Um, and you know, we, you know, there, we've, we've been blessed to live in an age where, you know, there've been poets that crossed over, you know, from being literary poets to being public poets, you know, like, like Seamus Haney and, mm -hmm. and poets like that. And I'm, I'm a little concerned because I'm not sure that we're going to, have those going forward. I mean, there, there's some people that I think have a lot of potential that I'm hopeful for, mm -hmm. but, um, I don't think they're there yet. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they're quite close yet. So I think it's gonna be another 10 years before we find out whether we have another generation of Haney's and Walcott's and Wilbur's Wilbur's and bishops and, you know, people like that. So you mentioned 
you mentioned Wallace Stevens and T.S. Eliot and, and mm-hmm. how they were raised on, you know, not raised, but they were sort of uh, taught on the, you know, they were taught the forms in that, you know, even if they were going away from them or sub- subverting them at times even, or uh, branching off from them, they're at least, their work was at least informed by them. It seems to me that what's happened since them is we've been taught to read those poets sort of for themselves and for their quote unquote creativity and not as part of a larger conversation that stretches back decades and centuries of English poetry. Would you say that that's fair that that's one of the problems is that we're not taught to read these contemporary works in sort of the context of a larger conversation so much as just for some sort of vague notion of, of creativity. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Well, yeah, I think that's right. And I might even go further and say, um, really without a strong religious or philosophical underpinning in most cases. I mean, what we've got is a very strong uh, ideological set of views that really aren't up for much d- debate or discussion that influence a lot of these poems. Um, but, you know, I I don't find that very satisfying, and I don't, I don't think the public at large generally will find that very satisfying. So, you know, the question is, I think in order to sell more broadly, it's going to be a different kind of vision, a different kind of depth than what we're typically seeing with the poets that are coming along now that are very popular in the academy. That can write a poem and then just quickly throw it up on Instagram and it doesn't have to go through much of a process to get there. (laughs) Well, no, I don't want to see that either. Um, But, um, uh, and you know, and there's always been you know, um, you know, there was, you know, people memorized service in the old days. And, you know, when I was growing up, you know, there were, you know, a million people gaga about Rod McEwen. And so there's always been sort of low end poetry. And I don't think, and I think it's fine. I think if it's a, if it's a gateway to getting interest in poetry and it serves some need, I, you know, I don't want to knock that. Um, but I would, what I would like to see are some poets filling that huge chasm between the sort of the unchallenging popular poets and the poets of the academy that really aren't speaking to people. Um, I, I think that our culture needs poetry. It needs art. You know, it needs music. And I think we're doing a better job, you know, with music, um, a little less so with art. Um, and, um, but I don't think we're doing a good, and we're doing a pretty good job with fiction, I think. I don't read very much fiction anymore, but um, I think there are people out there that are touching chords with the public with, with interesting fiction. I just think, don't think we're doing it very often with poetry anymore. Do you, can you think of, you know, for, for our listeners who are saying, okay, tell me where to turn, like, how do I put, how do I invest in this in my life for for myself or my family or my classroom or whatever it is. Do you have, do you have a couple of poets in mind that you would, that you would recommend that people, that people look to? Sure. So there, there are poets, um, older poets who haven't gotten very much exposure, uh, and recognition. Um, one of them is the great, um, Dominican American poet, Rena Espaillat, um, who's also a splendid translator. Um, she's in her late eighties now, didn't really start publishing until she's about 60. Um, and they're marvelous, beautiful poems. And they're, 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 they're poems that, 
have the depth and complexity to keep the academy um, happy and their poems that a typical member of the public could pick up and read and respond to and be moved. Um, and they're terrific. And, I, and it, it pains me that she doesn't get the recognition you know, that she should. Oh, that's um, E-S-P-A-I-L-L-A-T, right? Yes, that that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and she's got, I think, it's, uh, I think it's her 12th book out just now um, from Abel Muse Press. Um, and she's she's been quite prolific in the last 30 years. And it's, and it's, but it's all, it's very carefully crafted work. I mean, it really is tremendous. Um, there are some younger poets I don't, wouldn't venture age, but approximately half my age, <laughs> um, who I'm, I'm high on. Um, Nicholas Friedman just came out with his first book uh, that won the New Criterion Prize. Hmm. Um, there's um, an editor for the Cincinnati Review named Caitlin Doyle, who I'm very high on, who has not published her first book yet. So, you know, there there are there's always reason for, for hope and there are always some talented people coming along. And I hope that, um, I think the hard thing for people in the general public, they start looking at poetry, all they can find is stuff that they're not really going to relate to. And the problem for the public is large at large is there are not very many places they can go to see thoughtful, accessible, well-crafted poetry. Um, and I think our journals are letting us down in that regard. Okay. So then my last question is as the editor of, of first thing, the poetry editor of first things, yeah. when you, when you are, you're getting submissions, you're, you're looking over things that people are sending you. What is it that you're looking for? You know, I mean, I know that you have the specific sort of first things uh, identity in mind, I suppose, but, but what are you, what are the things that are most moving you that are catching your eye, like that just kind of say, okay, I got to, I got to share this with our readers. Right. So I'm still pretty new at this, but let me, let me take a crack at it. So I get a lot of very earnest, very intense (laughs) poetry that really I don't want to publish and it's, and it, and they fall into two categories. I mean, one is very literal restatements of the Bible, um, where it just, you know, there, there's, there's nothing embroidered, nothing in the imagery to make you think about it harder or differently or that kind of thing. Fairly simple restatements. Um, and then, and then basically religious testimony that it's very heartfelt and stuff, but it does it doesn't translate as art. So what I'm um, looking for, uh, and it's evolving, you know, because it's only been four months. Um, I, I'm looking for poems that are well crafted, where you get the sense that the poet is taking you toward. Uh, a sense of grace, a sense of a broader understanding in uh, uh, a general, it doesn't have to be doctrinal, but in in sort of a religious sense. Um, And, um, you know, I have a tilt toward the the formal, but, you know, I'm open on the free verse too. I mean, I had, uh, the best experience I've had so far is, um, 
I had a um, college sophomore send in two poems. Hmm. Um, one was formal, one was free verse. And, you know, I, I want to be encouraging. I mean, I try with college kids to send them a more personalized note. I can't do that with everybody, but I try, sure. you know, if I know that they're of, sure. of that age. So I read the formal poem and I said, you know, this is pretty good. You know, she's got some real promise, um, but, you know, it's just not first things ready and it's not something that I can fix mm-hmm. with one or two suggestions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I send her an encouraging note and, oh, yeah, now I've got to look at the, the free verse poem. And the free verse poem just knocked my socks off. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just thought it was tremendous. And, and you know, and it's a sort of a meditation where she's sitting, watching workmen renovate um, a college building and she's thinking about Augustine and it's, and it's beautiful. I mean, it really is. And, and, and so it was um, so cool to find a poem like that, that I just, I love so much. Um, and then, then to know that it's coming from somebody um, just starting and that, you know, having placement in a, major journal, you know, so early um, in her poetic career is likely to be life-changing. And that that was all just all cool. I mean, most of it is sort of, it's hard because, you know, you're dashing the dreams of people, you know, on sort of a daily basis. And, and because it's formally oriented, and, you know, I, I seem to know a pretty high percentage of the formal poets in the country. You know, a lot of times it's dashing the hopes of people I know, at least tangentially. Um, right. and, th- and I find that really hard, you yeah. know. Um, and, um, but I'm dealing with it. And um, you won't see my handiwork. I mean, I think my taste is similar to Paul Lake's, who did it for more than a decade. Um, but I think my taste is a little different. But we had a... a I think we had about 28 poems in the pipeline when Paul stepped down. So you won't start seeing, you know, the, the slight change probably until July, August, September or something like mm-hmm. that. But, um, but yeah, but it's, but I'm, but I'm looking for poems like, I mean, and sometimes you get poems. I mean, I, I got this obscenity filled poem yesterday <clears throat> and I just, you know, part of me wanted to write a, a note back that said, are you kidding you know, do you know anything about this magazine at all that you would send this yeah, sort of vile, this vile, hate-filled poem in here? You know, not, and again, but but I'm not looking for, you know, I'm not looking for the trite. I I want I want things that are accessible to you know an educated person who pays for first things, you know, because of like thinking about religion and history and literature and politics and all that kind of, you know, um, you know, broadly interested in the world. And I want to come up with poems that will interest them and grab them and make them think about, think about the world. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's really what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I will remember not to send you any uh, profanity laced poems then. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. At least not, at least not hate filled ones. (laughs) And we're, and we're not talking about just like, Fairly over the line. <laughs> We're talking about pretty bad. But, yeah. You know, 
Yeah, like uh, there's children that may, might pick up their parents' copies of. Her. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's right. I, if, if we ran that poem, there would probably be five thousand cancellations of, uh, you know, uh, subscriptions from um, first thing subscribers. So, I, I, my first rule is to try to try to do no damage <laughs> to the institution. So. Yeah, that makes sense. That's probably a good uh, good goal. Well, I I, I really appreciate you uh, spending some time. I enjoyed it. Thank you. No, happy to do it. Likewise. Well, thanks again to Mr. A.M. Juster for coming on to Talk Mary Oliver. And of course, thanks to Allison Bacchus-Troy as well. And that's our show for this week. As always, thanks so much for listening. Remember, subscribe, rate, review, help us spread the word. For all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Talk to you next week. Happy reading. Happy reading.